0: Thanks, David, ever so much, and uh, Linda, too. Brand new series then, last week. Uh, nailed it. Hashtag Jesus nailed it. For the next 10 weeks, we're looking together at the resurrection. The New Testament does exactly that, focuses on the resurrection. You have to go through the cross uh, to get there, but capturing the true spirit of the whole Easter journey, we're going to highlight, underline, put in bold, remind ourselves of the resurrection and its implications week in, week out. Is Jesus truly the Son of God? Does his death have meaning for others, i.e., does his death have meaning beyond itself? Is there only one true way? Is my life bigger than simply the sum of my years? Is Jesus the winner, the conqueror, the one in whom we can trust come what may, the one who we can set our hopes on, the one whose promise will be true to lead us all the way home? The answer to all those questions is yes, yes, because Jesus nailed it at the resurrection. Dead men don't rise. In three days... I will rise again. According to the scriptures, I will be tried by the chief priests, the religious people, all those awkward, funny people, and I will be put, but three days, I will rise. Mark my words. If you missed last week, you can get that online, forward slash nailed it. You can sign up there, you can get it from iTunes and all the usual stuff. Today, we're going to respond to the invitation that's contained within the resurrection stories. Verse 5 of the chapter that David read for us, the verses that David read to us. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen just as he said And the invitation, come and see the place where they laid him or where he lay. Come and see, come and look, come and investigate, come and explore, come and check out the evidence, reflect on the reality that there in that tomb where his body once was laid is now empty. An untold number of people have set about looking at the evidence with the expectation that they would be able to find enough flaws in the whole story in order to disprove the resurrection. A number of those who have embarked on that journey have found themselves overwhelmingly surprised by the evidence for the resurrection. Come and see. Come and look. But beware, many who have done have been surprised by what they've discovered. If we were to come and look, what might we discover? If we were to examine the evidence this morning, how might we handle it? What are the issues that we might grapple with? What are the thoughts that would go through our minds? Firstly, let's think about the testimony. For what I received... I passed on to you as of first importance, Paul writes, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter, then to the twelve, after that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living. Then he appeared to James, then last of all he appeared to me, the Apostle Paul, referencing him south here in these verses are some of the earliest verses written down in our new testament the gospels record the stories of jesus and what happened but they were written sometime later after the timing of these particular words These were some of the earliest words that the Christians would share together to encapsulate what they believed and what they understood to have happened. Christ died, was buried and raised on the third day. Why am I making an issue about it being very early? In history, a document's authenticity is often associated with two factors. Several others as well, but take all things being equal just for a moment. The first factor is how close in time to the actual event are the words that we have recorded. And the second factor is the number of manuscripts, the number, the quantity, and therefore the quality of those written words and their nearness to that particular event. Now the New Testament in terms of authenticity on those normal historical measures is absolutely off the scale compared to every other documentation. We haven't got time to explore it this morning. I've put some things on my blog that you can see uh, this afternoon. But just as an example, Livy's Roman History, the earliest copy we have is 900 years after the event. And that will be taught up and down the country like it's a certain amount of reliable fact. Whereas Paul is writing some 20 years after the event. And by AD 130, so within 100 years, we have the manuscripts that we have today. Uh, uh, The the Roman history, maybe 20 copies. New Testament, 5,000 plus copies. So on, on every kind of conceivable measure, the Bible cannot be swept aside with the kind of culture and suspicion of skepticism that our culture treats it. You can read these history books in school, and then you can read the Bible with a certain level of suspicion. That's just not a very intellectual or rigorous way of handling the documents. The earliest attestations, the most reliable sources that we have, say that Jesus died, was buried, and on the third day rose again. And you'll notice what Paul says. He says, I've received, what I've received, I pass on uh, uh, an idiom, a Jewish idiom of oral tradition. I'm not just making these words up. I'm passing on these set words because it's important that what we pass on is the reliable truth. And of course, there were no printing press. There was no computers. There was no reading books. There were no uh, ways of mass uh, publication or duplication. So story was passed on verbally and orally, and they were extremely good and careful at it. This was not gossip, but something that was carefully handed down. The third thing about this particular early testimony is that it's a living testimony. Paul says, if you don't believe my words, go and speak to the, well, just about 500 people that have met this risen Jesus. You can go get in your car, or your chariot, or your helicopter, and you can visit them right now. You can check it out with people that have seen him, heard him, touched him, been with him. You don't just have to take my word for it. There is a a living reality. It's not like there was just one person who had suffered with some Alzheimer's type disease for ages who was perpetuating this myth. But you can check it out. You can talk to reasonable people from different walks of life. And you can ask them their opinion on this. And fourthly, it's a consistent testimony. Because when those Gospels did get written, and different people wrote them from different backgrounds, they wrote those four stories with different purposes in mind, they would have known these early traditions that Paul refers to in 1 Corinthians. But none of the gospel writers feel it necessary to harness all the evidence for the empty tomb. As if somehow they were trying to convince people. Why? What's well, the most likely understanding? Because amongst the people of the day it was properly understood. It wasn't didn't need to be defended that there was an empty tomb. And the Christians claim that Jesus was alive. life marshalling evidence became unnecessary. So the Gospels don't mention that he happened to meet 500 people, although they do mention different groups of people that Jesus met, which would have been part of those 500. Dr. John Drain, some of you have read some of his works, writes, By itself, the fact of an empty grave would prove nothing except that Jesus' body was not there. Without the empty grave, the visions would prove nothing objective, though they might tell us something about the psychology of the disciples. But the combination of the two facts, if they are indeed correct, could be strong evidence in support of the claim that Jesus was alive. So you can't dismiss the records easily. In fact, historians of all kinds of persuasions are persuaded about the authenticity of the early documents. And fifthly, it's a genuine testimony. Why do I say it's a genuine testimony? Because there are strange things going on in. The women finding the empty tomb is very strange in that particular culture and context. And we talked about that last week. The way the disciples themselves are portrayed as being somewhat uh, uh, hopeless, to be honest. When it came to believing what Jesus had said about the resurrection. There is nothing in the story that leads us to believe that the disciples themselves thought that Jesus would come back to life. In fact, they're portrayed as startled and frightened and full of doubt. It's a genuine account of the reality of what these people went through. When you present yourself, the temptation is to improve yourself a little bit. When you present yourself this morning, you put some makeup on to improve yourself a little bit. Men ironed your shirt. Maybe not. Improve yourself a little bit. But it all hangs out in these gospel stories. It's all messy and embarrassing and shame-filled and awkward. Real events a genuine testimony. Matthew 28 always surprises me with the genuineness of the testimony. The 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountains where Jesus had told them. When they saw him, they worshipped him. And then what you expect to read is the Great Commission. And some of them doubted. What a bunch of losers. Unless it's true, unless it's real, unless it's human experience, unless that's what happened. Some of them were doubting. Because it's real. We thought about the testimony, the written record. But maybe the most powerful testimony is not the written record, but the lived out record. The testimony, now the transformation of those first disciples. What is the explanation for the transformation that so obviously took place in those early disciples' lives? We have to face the indisputable fact that a thoroughly disheartened band of disciples who were utterly depressed, totally disillusioned, and smashed by Jesus' death, believing that there was no hope, believing that they'd made a fool of themselves, giving up everything for Jesus. We have to face the undeniable fact that something happened that took them from there into a band of courageous, fearless, dedicated, purposeful, intentional-filled band proclaiming the resurrection to the ends of the earth. Their living testimony, the way that they behaved, the things that they went on to do, is a living testimony to the resurrection of Jesus. The first sermon at Pentecost was all about the resurrection. It was all about the way, the reality of Jesus, whom you crucified and God raised to life. It's all about him. We are here in this space, in in that courtyard outside Jerusalem, because of him. That's what Peter was saying in that first sermon. Michael Green writes, The church, beginning from a handful of uneducated fishermen and tax gatherers, swept across the whole known world in the next 300 years. It's a perfectly amazing story of peaceful revolution that has no parallel in the history of the world. It came about because Christians were able to say to inquirers, Jesus did not only die for you, he's alive. You can meet him and discover for yourself the reality we are talking about. They did and joined the church. And the church born from that Easter grave spread everywhere. The transformation of those disciples, a living testimony. But not just those disciples, so many other disciples As well as Paul would say, I am one of the other disciples. I I dedicated my life to persecuting Christians, to eradicating Christianity from my nation. And I met the risen Jesus. And he goes on to explain how he was so opposed to Christianity. How he was so opposed to the resurrection and all that those first disciples were saying. That he'd set the whole course of his life to be against them. And the power of the resurrection was that his life would be completely and utterly turned around. Nicky Gumbel writes, Countless millions of people down the ages have experienced the risen Jesus Christ. People from every color, race, tribe, continent and nationality. They come from different economic, social and intellectual backgrounds. Yet they all unite in a common experience of the risen Christ. So what is it that created that transformation in those first disciples? And what is it that causes that transformation, the ripples of which are still going out to this day from that Palestinian grave? Thirdly, testimony, transformation. What about the theories about what is supposed to have really happened? There are lots of different theories. When the chief priests had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, you are to say, his disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. If this report gets to the governor, we'll satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed. And this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. Think about some of the theories. See how strong those theories are. See how we might understand them in the light of what's happened to those first uh, disciples. First theory is this one there that was perpetuated The disciples stole the body. All kinds of problems with the notion that the disciples stole the body. It seems psychologically improbable. The disciples were totally fearful and defeated. Why on earth would they steal Jesus' body when they didn't believe in the resurrection any more than anyone else was believing in the resurrection. Crafton to Sally's two apologists write these words, the change in their lives, the disciples, from fear to faith, despair to confidence, confusion to certitude, runaway cowardice to steadfast boldness under threat and persecution, not only proves their sincerity, but testifies to some powerful cause of it. Can a lie Cause such transformation in the human heart. And if they did set about a conspiracy theory, which people do, let's face it, conspiracies are all the rage, what was the motive? I would suggest there was no motive for the disciples to steal the body. People lie in order to gain something. For the disciples lie, they were hated, scorned, persecuted, excommunicated, tortured, exiled, crucified, boiled alive, roasted, beheaded, disemboweled, and fed to lions. Those are the perks of the conspiracy that they stole the body of Jesus. Some of these things take a lot more faith than the resurrection itself. And if the disciples did steal the body, why was the lie never exposed? The authorities had power and influence and a ginormous invested interest in squashing this new radical belief. They were livid at what the disciples were doing. They would do anything to destroy this Jesus group. That's why they devised a plan that we read about here. If there had been a conspiracy, writes William Craig, it would certainly have been unearthed by the disciples' adversaries who had both the interest and the power to expose any fraud. Common experience shows that such intrigues are inevitably exposed. Given time, the truth, in other words comes out. Remember being struck by the words of Chuck Colson who was um uh, a presidential adviser special counsel to president Nixon during the Watergate scandal. Uh, and he commented thinking about the resurrection How once the scandal was under the spotlight, people very quickly began to capitulate. The the truth very quickly began to emerge as the squeeze was applied to the people involved. He says, I know how impossible it is for a group of people, even the most powerful people in the world, to maintain a lie. The Watergate cover up lasted only a few weeks before the first conspirators broke and turned state's evidence. As soon as pressure mounted and the Watergate conspirators realized that they could be punished, they broke. Yet, in contrast, not even one of Jesus' disciples, even though they faced horrendous persecution and death, renounced belief in the resurrection. In other words, history tells us that when the squeeze gets applied, the truth comes out. The disciples had some squeeze, didn't they? Crucifixion, beheading, crucified upside down, boiled alive. They lost everything for this Jesus and his story of resurrection. Two other final thoughts about the disciples stealing the body. We know that the tomb uh, was guarded. And we know that when Pilate sent the guard that's a title of a group of four Roman guards. Take a guard, Pilate says, and put it outside the tomb. Some people argue that it wasn't a, a Roman guard, that it was part of the temple police. The Jewish temple police were, were also trained guards, and they would have numbered ten. So you can have four Roman guards if you like, or you can have ten temple police. All of whom were absolutely committed to the task that they had been given. If the guards who were given the job of guarding the tomb were shown in any way to be negligent, what was the punishment? Death on the spot. So it's no mucking about for these guys. These are the SAS of the Roman highly trained soldiers. And then lastly, so obviously as the disciples get past them, these Timid people that wouldn't even go out sent the women to the tomb because they were too scared to go themselves. Just a nod and a wink from heaven. The disciples stole the body. You need to imagine for a moment they get past the stone. That's another mute point, isn't it? All that gets out the way. They get into the grave and Jesus' body's been wrapped really tightly in all the mummy stuff. And somehow they unwrap Jesus' body, get Jesus out. They wrap the mummy up as if there's something inside when there's nothing inside. I mean, you need more skill than using cling film to do that. <laughs> just like this nod and wink from heaven. Look, there it is. There it is, all just laid there, just ready to go. Like a, like a butterfly had emerged, emerged from a perfect uh, chrysalis. The grave clothes are there as a nod and a wink from heaven. It's fantastic stuff. So, disciples stealing the body seems unlikely. Uh, others have said which is even more ridiculous that the authorities therefore stole the body which is pretty mad really because if the disciples stole the body what's the first thing they would have done okay the disciples have, uh, the authorities have got the body yeah Just get into this this is spectacluso stuff they've got the body okay and then over here there's a band of weirdos that these guys hate saying he's alive he's alive what they're going to do Here he is. Here he is. No, no, no. Here he is. Somewhat embarrassingly, they could never produce the body. The idea that the authorities stole the body seems to be a ridiculous uh, notion. Third major theory is that Jesus himself didn't die. That somehow in the coolness of the tomb, his body revived. Again, all the evidence goes against The notion. The soldiers knew what they were doing. They had killed thousands of people by execution. And they went to Pilate, and Pilate said, Are you sure he's dead? That's too quick. And they said, Absolutely. We know that he's dead. There was a time pressure to get Jesus off the cross before the Sabbath. That's why the the Roman soldiers went to break the legs of those that had been crucified. Because once your legs were broken, you could no longer push your body up. The only way you could breathe on the cross as your lungs collapsed would be to push your body up. If your legs are broken, you can no longer push your body up and you die almost immediately. But they didn't break the legs of Jesus. They broke the first man who had been crucified... With Jesus, and then those of the other man. But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs, but they did something else, didn't they? What did they do? They put a spear into Jesus' side, and what happened? Blood and water flowed out. John. Who was there is writing down what he sees he doesn't understand the medical significance that we would apply to that today where the spear goes up under the side towards the rib cage and around the heart the blood and water as a sign that the person was dead john just writes what he sees but we understand a deeper meaning but anyway did that really happen again the grave clothes would have suffocated jesus Jesus, we know, was scourged. No one disputes that. He was giving lashings on his back which ripped the skin off his back so that people's bowels and intestines and organs could be seen. Many men died simply because of those floggings. So having suffered the torture of the floggings that would have rendered his body completely incapable of any strength, then being crucified, he's put in a grave in which he wriggles out of the grave clothes, rolls back the stone, overpowers the guard and slips away naked into the night without anybody noticing. It takes more faith than the resurrection. You have have to have more belief in filling in the gaps than you do in believing what the scriptures have to say. And in any case... A half dead, staggering sick man who has just had a narrow escape is not usually worshipped fearlessly as divine Lord and conqueror of death. It seems most unlikely. Why the transformation of the disciples if Jesus had crawled back in at the dead of night barely alive? The fifth theory. Jesus didn't actually die. Fifth one is that all the people that saw him, including the 500, they were all hallucinating. They were all seeing something in their mind's eye that wasn't true in reality. Well, people do hallucinate. Normally, because they're on some kind of uh, drug that induces the hallucination, or because they have a highly imaginative, highly strung, highly nervous disposition. So they would hallucinate. But, but so many, so many seeing the same thing. The trouble is that hallucinations are by their very nature subjective. You see what's in your head because that's what a hallucination is. The miracle that over 500 people saw the same hallucination is, is just a weird understanding altogether. And hallucinations cannot be touched. See, come and touch. Come and see the marks on my hands. Hallucinations, you can't actually eat stuff like come and have breakfast. You know, you don't, you don't dream of a big feast and then wake up full, do you? You dream of a big feast and wake up hungry. So as challenging and as disturbing remember last week, as inconvenient to our worldview, as awkward as it is, as utterly ridiculous and absurd we might regard it, although in churches we're very familiar with it, we are left after the testimonies and after the transformed lives and after the theories, we are left seemingly with the truth. If you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. The resurrection of Jesus, a factual reality. The resurrection of Jesus, making our Christian faith utterly distinct from every other world religion, faith, or creed. Completely distinct. No other faith, or creed, or religion, or way of life roots its beginnings. In the reality of a person who died and claims to come back to life again. I made that point once in something I was writing that went out around um, the streets here. And I had one of those moments uh, when I thought I was going to be physically injured. It's only happened a couple of times in, in my time here. Once was at a trustees meeting. No, I'm just joking about that. And this guy was absolutely furious that I should talk about Jesus being different from everybody else. The reason he's furious is because it it forces each one of us to think about it. And it's unpopular and it's awkward to be uh, bold about it and to be inclusive and embracing as our society encourages us to be and there's a lot of good about that but an awful lot of undermining about that also because Jesus didn't leave us in a position to go well maybe maybe not take it or I won't as we talked about last time and and at the very base level there is no other in fact from people of other faiths and religions there's a lot more respect because they recognize that what we're talking about is at least distinct and different from anything everywhere else the simple faith of the christian george hansen writes who believes in the resurrection is nothing compared to the credulity of the skeptic who will accept the wildest and most improbable romances rather than admit the plain witness of historical certainties. The difficulties may be great, but the absurdities of unbelief are even greater. When Jesus rose from the dead, he nailed it. He nailed it. He nailed it. And as the gospel writers would write, and as the letters in the New Testament, I write these things that you might be certain. That phrase comes, we say these things today that we might be certain. That we might know the truth, and the truth will set us free. Work out your truth. If you'd like to. Work out from the evidence why you think what you think. But it's way too important to put it off what you think to another day, another week, another month, another year. Because if it's true, everything. If it's false, then let's silently stand up, head for the door, and would the last person be kind enough just to switch off the light? The stakes are that high and maybe higher still because he said if you believe in me there are many rooms in my father's house and i go to prepare a place and if i go i will come back to take you that you also may be with me where i am we don't know the way we don't know the way we don't know the way get a sat-nav then get a sat-nav we don't know the way jesus said yeah you do I, Jesus, the person, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Nailed it. Nailed it. Let's pray.